we find ourselves in this chapter in the fourth of four woes. It's not uncommon for this part of Isaiah's preaching to be concerned with leveling woes against those who rebel against God. But here he's drawing to a close these woes against the southern kingdom, the the kingdom of Judah, that is of Israel and Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in Isaiah 30 is that Isaiah is alerting us to the counterintuitive ways of God. It warns us against rejecting the foolishness of God for our own wisdom. The Bible says the Spirit's things are hidden from us. Rather, they are hidden for us in Christ. True spirituality comes in union with Christ who died and was raised again. He is, according to the Bible, the wisdom and the power of God And what that means is that in Christ, God has stockpiled for us resources that outperform all of our natural instincts. That's why the Bible admonishes, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. God is going to teach us this morning through Isaiah a similar message that the conventional wisdom of the world is stupid. Kids, don't repeat that. But it is. True spirituality comes when we stop setting our minds on what appears obvious to us in any given moment. That in a sense, we have to abandon every other hope, however reasonable or however advantageous it may appear. That we must disbelieve every contrary claim to truth, no matter how widely accepted. That we must believe in God alone. And recognize that our soul's stability comes when we yield control to Him. And that our only freedom is in surrendering to Him. No, brothers and sisters, listen. True spirituality always runs contrary to our instincts. And God has sent Isaiah to deliver the same message to us this morning. We are not to hope in this world or its wisdom, but we are to trust in God and in his word. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the apostle Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We want to reject the foolishness of God, or rather the wisdom of the world, and trust rather in the foolishness of God. And Isaiah is going to establish this by really asking us four questions in this chapter. In verses 1 through 7, it asks, What is not helpful? What is not helpful? And then in verses 8 through 17, who should we listen to? Who should we listen to? Verses 18 to 26, what can we look forward to? What is it that we can look forward to? And then finally, it'll answer a fourth question in verses 27 to 33, who in the end is a threat to us? Who is a threat to us? Who is not helpful? Who should we listen to? What can we look forward to? 
And who is a threat to us? And as we learn the answers to each one of these four questions, one big idea is ultimately going to emerge. And if you're taking notes, this is my entire sermon in one sentence. When choosing between trusting in your wits or trusting in God, trust God. When choosing between trusting in your own wits and trusting in God, trust God. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, follow along with me. Woe, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. The key phrase here is carry out a plan in verse 1. Do you see it there? God isn't primarily concerned with what we say we believe. He's ultimately concerned with how what we say we believe works itself out in our plans and our strategies for living life. That it's possible to believe all of the right things and yet at the same time negotiate the details of your daily life by another wisdom. A wisdom that does not at all look like the wisdom of God but rather the wisdom of the world. That's what Isaiah's generation did. They knew all about the Exodus. They had been familiar with God's saving and redeeming power. They had the scriptures. They knew the Bible, so to speak. But in the hard business of daily life, they lived their lives by a different set of rules. Their practical struggle was the mounting pressure of the Assyrian Empire. Judah was tired of being shoved around, and so they were terrified. And yet the Lord God had made a covenant with them for times just like this. That covenant essentially had said to them, let's go through this together. I will be your refuge and I will be your strength. I will be your ever-present help when things seem to be going sideways, when everything gets turned upside down, and when everything seems to be mounted against you. I will be your fortress and I will be your shield. You will be my people and I will be your God. And yet there's something deep inside of us, just like there was something deep inside Israel that diminishes past facts and magnifies present circumstances. That somehow God's faithfulness in the past, it just doesn't seem to really carry that much weight for too long. And pretty soon we're feeling as unloved and as alone as ever. That is why, brothers and sisters, you and I, we need constant reminding and we need constant renewal. Because there's always some plausible alternative to trusting in God. Something that's going to tempt us from taking our eyes off of God and, and tempt us away from trusting in his word. You see, the mistake that Judah made was to protect herself from Assyria through an alliance with Egypt. But I want you to think about that for just a moment. God's covenant people, upon whom he had set his affection, whom he had redeemed by his mighty outstretched hand, The ones with whom he had made a covenant. This God. This God. Had been rejected by his people. And now God's covenant people are going back to their old slave master to find freedom. 
From a human perspective, it seems like the right thing to do. When you measure up all that your eyes can see and your heart is feeling in that moment, boy, it seems prudent, doesn't it? Assyria is really big. We're really little. Egypt is really big. If we can get Egypt on our side against Assyria, we might stand a chance. But spiritually speaking, it was foolish that the wisdom of the world was, to use that nasty S word again, stupid. That Egypt can offer the people of Judah nothing that they didn't already have in God. And then some. You see, the irony of their stubborn plans is revealed in the word alliance in verse 1. Do you see it there? To make an alliance. But the term can also be translated covering. In fact, Isaiah uses the exact same term all the way back in chapter 28. You may remember when we were there. Isaiah writes, For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Of course, he's talking about Judah's temptation to trust in other nations. He's going, the security that you're looking for, that security blanket, it's going to prove too small for you. You've made your bed, now you're going to have to lie in it. That's essentially what he's saying. Well, the meaning of that passage in chapter 28 is the same as the meaning here. That Judah's alliance with Egypt seemed to cover them like a warm blanket. Oh, it felt safe. It felt comfortable. But in the end, what Isaiah is saying, or what, rather what God is saying through Isaiah, is that it's going to ultimately fail them and it's going to prove too small. And it's because it was an idol. It was a substitute savior in whom they were placing their trust rather than in the God of their redemption. Brothers and sisters, how often do we expect God to bless our plans as if with some kind of divine rubber stamp? That we've made our plans and what we need is for God just to go ahead and approve it and expedite it. But friends, listen to me. God does not bless our plans. God only blesses that which is of himself. He blesses our plans only insofar as our plans have been conformed to his will. And if the truth of God doesn't look like trust in God in our daily lives, then like Judah in verse 2, look at what we end up doing. We add sin to sin in verse 1 rather. We add sin to sin. The first sin that it's talking about is not filling ourselves with the truth of God such that we're easily swayed. But the second sin is filling ourselves instead with our own false comforts. It's as if there's this massive vacuum and either the truth of God will fill that vacuum or some other false truth, lie, or idol will fill that vacuum. It will be one or the other. But those false comforts and those false securities and those substitute saviors, well, they, ne- they never end up working out. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he's saying, therefore, because you carried out a plan that wasn't mine, because you made an alliance that was with the nations and not with me, therefore, you set out without asking for my direction, because you did all of these things in your stubbornness, therefore, Shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation? For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Friends, what does this mean for us? It forces us to stop and ask a question that in all of our planning, whether it's with work or with our families, 
in all of our finances, or perhaps even in our own suffering and bitter providences, when we try to figure out how we're going to get out of this, are our plans being conformed to God's will? Or are your plans being conformed ultimately to your instincts in the moment, what seems right according to your eyes as you measure the landscape of your circumstances? Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that our knowledge is limited. We think we see everything as it is, but we actually see very little. We need to trust in the God who, as we learned last week, is at all places, at all times, at once, and therefore knows everything and sees everything. That in his sovereign purposes, he has ordained everything and he's made his will known to us in his word. Friends, we need to go to the Bible to conform our plans to God's will rather than like Judah seeking to have God conform to our plans. Look at verses four and six, four, 6 and 7, rather. Isaiah continues, he says, An oracle on the beasts of the Negev. To a land of trouble and anguish from where the lioness and the lion, the adder and the fly, fiery serpent, they carry the riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that can't profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. You may remember in chapters 13 through 23 how Isaiah introduced his oracles against the nations. Remember he says such is, for instance, the oracle against Babylon. But here Isaiah speaks an oracle against the animals. What is he doing? This seems so strange. No doubt all the way back in Jerusalem, Judah's leaders are anxiously awaiting word about their ambassador's success. But Isaiah sarcastically retorts, "Eh, forget about the ambassadors. What about the poor animals? He's just trying to open their eyes to to the fleeting foolishness of this mission. But really what's at stake are these poor animals that you've drug along. Forget the ambassadors. Forget your plans. Those were doomed to begin with. I just feel bad that you drug the animals in with it. So by sarcasm, this prophetic sarcasm, it tends to show Judah the the utter absurdity of their stubbornness. By not trusting in the word of God, they're reverting back to idolatrous patterns of self-rescue. They are, in a sense, reversing their redemption. They're they're working in redemptive reverse. And what is it that they'll end up gaining? Look again at verse 7. They're going to gain Rahab who sits still. If you have a New International Version, an NIV translation of the Bible, oh, I think it captures the sense of the phrase more clearly. Rahab, the do-nothing. Rahab is a term used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to Egypt. And by using this term, Isaiah is essentially saying, yeah, you'll go to Egypt, you'll get Egypt, but that old slave master is never going to deliver. She's all words. She's just a big do-nothing. That's what you're going to get for trusting in your plans and not in my word. Friends, it's at this point that we need to evaluate the ultimate profitability of our own wisdom. In our workplaces, as we interact with coworkers and our families, as we seek to be good husbands and wives with our children, as we seek to instruct them and raise them up, in our single lives, as we look at our desire, perhaps, 
to be married one day, and even the temptations to, to go contrary to God's word and to compromise with God's standards for what a godly spouse would look like because, oh, this is one who has finally given me attention and it's been so long since I've had it. Friends, in those moments when everything seems so right, when your anger feels so justified, when the love and affection and attention that you're receiving from others seems so worthwhile, when the money that you would gain, and the, though perhaps not through totally ethical means, seems to serve a better end that is the provision of your family. In all of these ways, will you draw a line in the sand and trust God's word? Or will you trust your own wisdom? Because friends, listen to me. If you choose to trust your own wisdom, according to verse 7, what you will profit is ultimately worthless and empty. And those substitute saviors, tempting you always, in ways that they can help you and save you and secure you and, and provide comfort to you. Oh, they're just do-nothings. They'll never provide. Friends, listen, sin always makes great promises. And it always hides the price tag. It's like that free trial that you sign up for and then forget about and then you get the bill a month later. The bill for sin always comes. It's never free. It will profit you nothing. So then a second question arrives then. Who then should we listen to? Isaiah's generation here is past the point of no return. They have rejected God's wisdom for their own understanding. And so then Isaiah records, as we see in verse 9, his message on a tablet for future generations. And now go write it for them on a tablet, he says in verse 8 rather, and inscribe it in a book that it may be there for time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Flannery O'Connor once wrote, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Or as one popular political pundit rightly says, facts do not care about your feelings. And yet we still resent and resist, don't we? Like a, with this flint-like objectivity to, to truth. Well, for Isaiah's generation, their treaty with Egypt wasn't ultimately the problem. What was beneath all of that the ultimate problem for Judah was an impatience with the word of God. They didn't want to hear it and they were unteachable. And why was that? It was because when God's word passed through their grid of worldly wisdom, of what seems right to them in any given circumstance, it seemed too impractical and far too demanding. Something that is demanding is worth it if the payoff for us is clear, is it not? And yet all that Judah could see were the demands. And it seems unreasonable. They didn't savor the value. And so they got tired of Isaiah's ministry. You see, what they wanted in verses 9 and 10 was not an end to preaching. Spiritual hypocrites love preaching. 
But they wanted the kind of preaching that would agree with their ideas, that would rubber stamp their plans, and that wouldn't ruffle their feathers. Notice at the end of verse 11, what they didn't want was the Holy One of Israel. They wanted a God of their own making, one that they could control and manipulate, one that would serve them and meet all of their desired ends. What they didn't want was a God who speaks with authority and makes demands on them. Because sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness, with whom there is no moral ambiguity. They want a God that always agrees with them and cares only about what they care about most in any given moment. That is not the God of the Bible. Well, in verses 12 through 14, Isaiah is going to show them what their own wisdom in rejecting the right preaching of the word is really worth. Look at verse 13. Or 12, rather. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust and oppression and perverseness, and, key word, rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. And these handful of verses here, Isaiah shows them what their wisdom is really worth. He says in verse 13 that their wisdom looks like a high wall. It seems stable. It seems safe. But then notice a crack forms. And following that crack, the whole thing ends up crumbling down on top of them. He's saying your wisdom isn't going to hold up. It's not, at the end of the day, it's not sustainable. No, he says in verse 14, our own ways are like a broken potter's vessel that gets smashed to pieces. They're too weak to stand up to the regular pounding that life inevitably inflicts. Friends, your natural instincts for responding to life may seem really impressive in the moment. But your instincts, untethered from God's word, cannot be trusted. Regarding your own wisdom, Isaiah is saying, do not hide beneath that wall. Do not put your precious oil in that jar. And then in verses 15 and 16, Isaiah puts two alternatives in front of them. And ultimately, in verse 15, it takes us to the heart of the prophetic message. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five of you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. The film Chariots of Fire illustrates what this looks like in real life. It tells the story of Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell. Both of them are great athletes. Both of them are sprinters and they sprint for the exact same team. But Abraham competes out of a deep insecurity and need to prove himself to everybody. It's all about him. Everything is about him. His world has shrunk down to the size of his self-absorption. Eric Liddell, on the other hand, 
was running in the Holy Spirit's joy. He says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. That's the whole reason that I run. Two men, two lives, two alternatives. One running in the joy of the Holy Spirit in obedience to God and one running on human strength alone. At the end of the day, Abraham's path was one that led not to victory but to defeat. So when Isaiah says, in returning and in rest you shall be saved and in quietness and trust shall be your strength, what he means is that repentance and faith, however counterintuitive it may mean in the middle or in the the moment, Repentance and faith are the only way that God saves us and strengthens us. And in verses 16 and 17, he says every other alternative other than trust in God is really just one and the same alternative that ultimately leads to our destruction. I have sat with too many men and too many women through the years in my study or across from them at coffee shops who were devoted to their to their own wisdom and to a path that was ultimately leading to destruction. To the temptation of an adulterous relationship with another person. To the, to the defaulting of a good faith loan. To the ongoing addiction to pornography or the mistreatment or anger toward a spouse or to trusting the world's wisdom even in raising their own children. But time and again, I can't tell you how often, and this gets to the heart, right at the heart of pastoral ministry. And brothers and sisters, it gets right to the heart of our discipling ministry to one another. And at the end of the day, the crux comes down to this. Will you trust God's word? No matter how counterintuitive it seems in your circumstances. Or will you trust your own wits to your own destruction? It wearies my heart to see far too many men and far too many women thinking their wits are more wise than God's word. And it never works out. It always ends up being empty. Friends, we have to be a people who in our discipling of one another... It's the goal of our church. Every disciple discipling, no undiscipled disciples. And there is no discipleship in the life of the church that isn't, at the end of the day, a word-centered discipleship. We bring the word of God to bear in one another's lives so that we can love, encourage, and guard one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility not only to bring the word to bear in the lives of others, But brothers and sisters, listen to me. We have a responsibility, even contrary to our own instincts in the moment, to listen to and obey God's word when others bring it to bear in our lives. This is at the very heart of discipleship. Make disciples going. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. I fear too many evangelical churches love the baptizing part, love the going part, don't like the teaching to obey part. And we've got to reach down and realize and remember that God has given us infinite resources in Christ, bottomless grace from Christ through His Spirit to do the very things that He demands of us that we could never do on our own and in our own strength.
Our discipleship has to be a word-centered discipleship. And our being disciples has to be a word-responsive discipleship. No matter how insane or counterintuitive or backwards it may seem, we proceed by faith, not by sight, and always by God's word. And for those who end up trusting in the Lord, verse 18, what is it then that we have to look forward to? Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all of those who wait for him. This is the verse on which the entire chapter turns. And I want you to look at the logic of God. He says, you've been unwilling. That's, that's the point. Up to this point, you've been stubborn. Therefore, I wait to be gracious to you. What exactly is God saying here? Wait is the operative word. It appears twice in this passage. You see it quite in this verse. The Lord waits and we wait. But the verse also shows us that the Lord's waiting and our waiting are not exactly the same. God does not wait like we wait because God is not beholden to time like we are. We are inside of time, but God is outside of time. He created time, therefore he cannot be beholden to it. If he were beholden to time, dependent upon it in some way to fulfill his, his works, then God would not be God because time would be bigger than God. No, God is outside of time, bigger than time, not dependent upon it, and yet we are. And so God's waiting is not like ours. So when Isaiah says that God waits, he's speaking by way of analogy. We wait for God in faith, confident that his timing is always right, that his methods are always wise, that his motives are always good. And this kind of trust in the Lord is the only path, Isaiah says, to real and lasting security and joy. But our passage says that God waits also, only God's waiting, unlike ours, isn't him trusting in us. There's one church that I drive by on 380 that says on their moving marquee all the time, God believes in you. That is blasphemy. God does not believe in you. He's not trusting in you to do the right thing so that maybe he can be unshackled to, to accomplish his purposes in the world. Now God exercise, that's what Isaiah is saying, God exercises continual patience with us. That's what it means. That like a loving father, he may discipline us and he may do so severely, but God never gets tired of us and he will never forsake us if we are in Christ. That he anticipates all of our needs and he meets them, even though we're undeserving. And friend, if you are in Christ by faith, then nothing will ever separate you from the love of the Father in Christ. So when bitter providences arrive and you find yourself asking the question, how long, O Lord? And God's answer, it seems, according to verse 18, may be, whenever you're ready. Cry out to me, is what he's saying. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem and you shall weep no more and he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And as soon as he hears it, he answers you. And the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
Then when you turn to the right or you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things and you'll say to them, be gone. That even in affliction, God's greatest gift to us is himself. His presence and his promises. The eyes of our hearts are enlightened and our ears are open so that the slightest word from him changes the whole trajectory of our lives. That God breaks through our unyielding and and our unbending hearts and he acts upon us with sovereign grace and with full authority. And when he does, oh, it's in that moment that we see the folly of all of our stupid idols for what they are and we're going to throw them in the trash. That's what we see in verse 22. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. These things are worthless compared to the Holy One of Israel. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone. These are the key ingredients to the blessed life. We not only glorify God, but we enjoy God. And our growing enjoyment of Him in this life is only a forecast of what's to come. Oh, look at this, verse 23. And He will give rain for the seed which you sow in the ground and and bread the produce of the ground. It's going to be rich and plenteous. And in that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures. And the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground, remember those that got the woe earlier in the passage? They're going to eat seasoned fodder which had been winnowed with shovel and fork. You've abused the creation, but I'm going to restore the creation, he's saying. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of the seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. With our idols finally broken in pieces at our feet, Isaiah sees a future day when God fulfills his covenant of grace. Here the prophet uses the Old Testament language and imagery to describe the renewal of all things. The Apostle Paul paraphrased Isaiah this way, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the creation is one day going to revel and rejoice in the very redemption and renewal that we will receive in the grace of God in Christ. Friends, We are not wise, but we need a teacher. As we read in verse 20, God is our teacher. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, guiding us safely home. And I want you to notice in verse 26 that our wise teacher also ends up being our good physician. who will end up binding up every last wound when we arrive. Isaiah is talking about ultimate, amazing grace flowing over us at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what those who overcome this world by faith in Him have to look forward to. Yes, this life may get hard. And they may be faced with countless circumstances in which God's word seems utterly counterintuitive. It seems backwards from where we should go and what we should do. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ will be our teacher. He is the one who says, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or turn to the left, he's the one directing us and guiding us. 
that his word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, guiding us safely home to him. Friends, do you believe that to be true? Do you believe at the end of the day it is God's word that will guide you safely home, not your wits and your wisdom? One old Puritan put it this way. Oh, the safety and the security of the saints. Even in the worst of times, in the time of plague, God's eye is upon them. His ear opens their cry. Christ's left hand is under their head supporting them. And his right hand embraces them. And all the angels are attending them. And at the heart of that, what he's ultimately saying is, what can really harm us? No matter how hard life gets, no matter how oppressive things may feel, if you are in Christ, what can harm you? This is ultimately the question of our final section. Who is a threat to us? And the key to this closing section is that phrase, the name of the Lord, in verse 27, you see it there. And then the phrase, the breath of the Lord, in verse 33. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overwhelming stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws the peoples of a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept. And gladness of heart is when one sets out to the sound of a flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst of storm and hailstones. And the Assyrians in that day will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with a brandished arm, he will fight for them. For a burning place, he has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood. And in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The Assyrians were no threat to those who were in Christ to those who were in covenant with God. All the powers of evil and all the powers of oppression and every injustice through all of history is ultimately no threat to the security of the saints. The power of sin and death are no threat. Why? Because of the name of the Lord. That phrase, the name of the Lord, means that the Lord has declared himself to us. He has supremely revealed himself to us and he's done so. In his son, Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ burns with such intensity towards sin and evil and injustice that he died on a cross to break the hold of sin and death and evil over his chosen ones whom he loves. This is the narrative. This is the story. This is the spiritual biography of every single sinner who would turn from sin and trust in Christ alone. By faith alone, oh friend, trust in Christ. Such that his sword would be to you a song and not a terror at the end of the age. 
Consider the sheer power of God in verse 28. The breath of the Lord is so scorching that all he has to do is blow on the evil one. And in verse 33, his funeral pyre goes up in flames. It's like those old Viking movies that you watch where the, where the deceased is floating off in the boat and they shoot those fiery arrows down in the boat and it combusts immediately. What Isaiah is saying is that's what's going to happen to the enemies of God and all he's going to have to do is blow like the wind that we feel on our faces right now. Instantly. That's the power of God. You realize, don't you, that that is exactly what the Father did to the Son on the cross for all of us who have trusted in Him. That Christ has absorbed all of that powerful wrath in our place so that we might be the righteousness of God. And it's all of grace. Friends, you can know that today if you trust in Christ. No wrath perfect righteousness and a father who loves you and adopts you into his family and gives you an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable and will never fade away. He will never leave you or forsake you. But it all comes through Christ and trusting in him. Perhaps only J.R.R. Tolkien. Missy, I haven't had a good Lord of the Rings illustration in a while. Perhaps only Tolkien's imagination comes so close to capturing this last thought in verse 30, or chapter 30, over God's final victory over all evil. At one point in the Lord of the Rings, Rohan's army is overwhelming the evil army of Mordor. Tolkien writes this, the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song and they sang as they slew for the joy of the battle was on them and the sound of their singing was fair and terrible. I love that phrase. They sang as they slew. So will it be for the people of God over their enemies at the end of the age that he will make all of his enemies a footstool under the feet of Christ, and we are in Christ. Who is a threat to those who trust in the Lord? The answer, according to Isaiah, is nobody. He looks into the future, and what does he see? He sees a feast. He sees music. He sees song. He sees gladness of heart. And in all of this, it's just imagery to say the victory belongs to God. The delight belongs to us. But friends, we don't always trust God to be our loyal ally, do we? In our weakness and our frailty, we still doubt him. And when God's wisdom runs contrary to our own wits, we trust our wits over his wisdom. And yet, even when we're unfaithful to God, the Bible says he is faithful to us because he cannot deny himself. He's so committed to his glory that he cannot be committed to those whom he's redeemed. And those whom he's redeemed cannot derail his glory. That is grace. And his faithfulness, brothers and sisters, should motivate us to respond in at least three ways. First, we need to avoid any path that deviates from the word of God. We need to reject any road that isn't paved with the gospel. 
If you are here and you are in any way trusting in your wits over God's wisdom, turn from it now. Do not stubbornly reject God's commands. Do not refuse godly advice from fellow believers. Ultimately, to persist in a path paved with your own wisdom is to travel toward destruction. Avoid any path that deviates from the word of God. Secondly, guard your heart against taking any offense at God's counterintuitive ways. His ways are going to often appear foolish to us according to worldly wisdom. And it's going to run contrary to the instincts of our flesh in a giving moment. Oh, but brothers and sisters, open yourself to God. Trust Him to be your teacher. Trust that He knows the right way and how to lead you. Trust that He will lead you to the right and to the left when that's where you should go. Or would you presume in your pride to have all the answers already? And to not need a teacher. Friends, guard your heart against taking offense at God's counterintuitive ways. Humble yourself before his word. And then finally, as the Holy Spirit reveals all of the false saviors that you have allied with, be honest. Define reality. Stop living in an illusion. Don't stubbornly keep up appearances or persist on the path that you've put yourself on. Break those alliances and lean on Christ alone because he is a strong savior. And no matter how attractive those substitute saviors may be, don't trust your wits or believe your instincts. Trust in God. And always remember that Jesus is better. Let's pray and enjoy the Lord's Supper together.